Welcome to What The If News. It's just great music, isn't it? It's great. It's a great theme. It's very dramatic. Uh, I want to give a shout out here to um, my co-host and our uh, incredible expert virologist, Gabby Panicia. Uh, who is here from Rockefeller University every week. Um, those of you who know, know. If you don't know, I'm going to tell you, why are you hearing this in your stream? Um, we do two kinds of shows here. On Fridays, thereabouts, I uh, do a show with uh, my colleague Matthew Stanley, Professor Matt Stanley at NYU, called What the If? And uh, we take we do thought experiments. Sometimes we do it. It's just uh, Matt and I. Uh, so oftentimes we have incredible guests as well, um, where we uh, learn a lot of science by doing fun science sci-fi or just sort of imaginary science fiction scenarios. We found ourselves living in one of those scenarios when this coronavirus uh, pandemic started, in particular here in New York where we live, but all over the world. And um, so we had Gabby here uh, on for uh, a number of episodes in a row. and. Uh, our show has since gone back to doing a little bit more of its variety of physics, astronomy, and biology, and all the different kinds of stuff we do on that show. Um, but I, want re I really wanted to keep tabs on uh, the virus, and so uh, we created this WTIF news uh, program, and uh, we do these on early in the week, usually on Monday or Tuesday, and Gabby is here to join us. Our news story um, that we're going to analyze this week. Uh, real quick, I'm going to read it for you, and then Gabby's going to help us. Gabby's going to come in and help us uh, understand. This comes from the BBC. Um, I'm reading here on the BBC website, bbc.com, in the health section. It's an article by James Gallagher of London. That's a lovely British name, James Gallagher. And James uh, wrote this article. Uh, that's, uh, the headline is, Coronavirus Came to the UK on at least 1,300 separate occasions. Hello, here's the article. Coronavirus was brought into the UK on at least 1,300 separate occasions, a major analysis of the genetics of the virus shows. The study by the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, which has the great name POG UK, as their semi-acronym, um, completely quashes the idea that a single, quote, patient zero started the whole UK outbreak. Gabby's going to help us understand what, is, what does that even mean, patient zero. Um, the analysis also finds China, where the pandemic started, had a negligible impact on cases in the UK. Instead, those initial cases came mostly from European countries. The researchers analyzed the genetic code of viral samples taken from more than 20,000 people infected with, the infected with the coronavirus in the UK. So 20,000 people had uh, swabs stuck up their nose, I think. Uh, and, and then the results flowed from there. Uh, like a giant, returning to the article, not my asides, uh, like a gigantic version of a paternity test. Yikes. The geneticists attempted to piece together the virus's massive family tree. This was combined with data on international travel to get to the origins of the UK epidemic. And here's what they found. They found the UK's coronavirus epidemic did not have one origin. 
there wasn't one person who walked into the country and gave it to everybody, but at least 1,356 origins specific. On each of those occasions, somebody brought the infection into the UK from abroad and the virus began to spread as a result. The, quote, the surprising and exciting conclusion is that we found the UK epidemic has resulted from a very large number of separate importations, said Professor Nick Lohman from COG UK and the University of Birmingham. Quote, it wasn't a patient zero. The study showed that less than 0.1% of those imported cases came directly from China. Only 0.1% came from China. Instead, the UK's coronavirus epidemic was largely initiated by travel from Italy in late February and then from Spain uh, in early to mid-March and then from France in mid to late March. The big quote, the big surprise for us was how fluid the process was. The rate and source of virus introduction shifted rapidly over the course of only a few weeks said Professor Oliver, Oliver Pibus from the University of Oxford. And apologies to my British friends for slipping into an English accent, but Oliver Pibus at the University of Oxford. It seems it has to be said that way. Quote, this happened later than perhaps we would have expected, added Professor Lohman. The study estimates 80% of those initial cases arrived in the country between the 28th of February and 29 March. The time that the, during the when the UK was debating whether to lock down, so in that late February to late March, um, as the UK was debating whether to lock down, uh, one thousand three hundred and fifty six variations of the virus were all pouring. After this point, the number of new imported <laughs> this is interesting. After this point, the number of new imported cases diminished rapidly. The earliest one could be traced back to the beginning of February. But it is possible there were cases even earlier that could not be picked up by this analysis. The study also says the controversial football match, important news for football fans, what Americans call soccer. The study also says the controversial football match between Liverpool and Atletico Madrid on 11 March probably had very little impact on bringing the virus into the country. So, congratulations, football fans. In this particular case, you did not cause mayhem. Uh, an estimated 3,000 fans flew in from Spain to watch the game, but there were 20,000 people flying in from Spain every single day in mid-March. Quote, it shows that individual events such as football matches likely made a negligible contribution to the number of imports at that time, Steady says. So good news for sports fans. And just uh, wrapping up the article here, the imported cases each started off a chain of transmission where the virus is passed from one person to the next, to the next, and so on. However, the study shows lockdown has massively disrupted the spread of the virus. It's good news. Quote, if there's good news here, these chains of transmission were and are being suppressed and are going extinct as a result of social distancing. And we continue to see that now. Professor Lohman said, probably with a smile on his face, because I have one now to hear that. So, Gabby, what's, uh, what's most important for us to take away from this article? I think it's, it's a really interesting way of, you know, changing the way that we look at 
uh, or at least conceptualize how these things start. Because, you know, you always think of, well, who's the patient zero? Um, but patient zero in this was really, you know, all the way back in, in China. Um, and so in a, such an interconnected world, it's likely not just, you know, one person bringing it into a country. Uh, and so... And just for, for those who don't, don't even, maybe not even familiar with that term or, or have heard it, but don't know exactly. Patient, it's interesting that it's called patient zero and not patient one. I guess they use more of like the, the computer numbering system. It's like start yeah, zero just, instead of it one. It just sounds worse. It, it's to it add does. insult to injury to whoever patient zero means, basically whoever may have been the very first person to get it from whatever the non-human source was. I guess so. Yeah, it's yeah. bad enough that you started a global pandemic, whoever you are. Um, <laughs> and you are not even patient number one, which might be kind of cool, but you are patient zero. Well, in theory, there could be a lot of patient number ones, I guess, if you sneeze on a bunch of people. Interesting. But, okay. Yeah. Um, but as far as, you know, talking about patient zero, the first person to say, bring this into an area. Right. Uh, when you're talking about a pandemic that's spread to most of the world and there's still travel between that, you know, chances are it might not just be like one person who brings it in. Uh, and so a study like this is potentially really important for, you know, moving forward from this where we want to take lessons back from how did we, how did we, this get, you know, so global on how do we stop it? This, this might be things that, you know, people, you know, like five years from now when we're trying to evaluate 2020 as a year and figure out what we could have done better. This is probably a study that they're going to look at and they're going to, try to figure out the dynamics of, you know, inter-country travel uh, and how that affects spread. And the fact that, you know, you're not just looking for one patient, you're looking for, what is it, 1,356 is their estimate? I love how specific that is. Uh, yeah, well. Yeah, 1,356. Yeah, 1,356. Um, so how do we, first of all, you mentioned when, when in the future people look back on the year 2020. I actually don't think we will. I think, <laughs> just gonna I forget think it. historians are going to be like, they just don't even look. Just don't, the, just a black box. Like, Oh, see, I, in contrast, I really think, you know, I'm going to see in textbooks, you know, hindsight to 2020. Uh, oh, whoa. That's, <laughs> I think it's perfect. It's a very good setup. That. That is amazing. That is very good. Touche. Uh, get the BBC online. That's a great headline. Um, a great expression. So uh, that's going to be your book. Actually, save that. Yeah. That's going to be a really, really meaty chapter of, I think, every history <laughs> book going forward. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we learned about American history. What, like, what, what area? 2020? <laughs> Just 2020. That's right. <laughs> um, but how, here's the thing. How do we know? Here's a layperson's question. How do they know? How can they even get so specific? Um, one thousand three hundred fifty-six. Like, what do they look? It's, what's one thing that's interesting about the articles? It doesn't describe the methodology at all. So yeah. So I, I actually I pulled up the paper itself, and I, I have oh, cool. that open, and I had looked through it. So I'll, I'll go into sort of the methodology a little bit, and then right. like a little bit of the limitations because they they have a whole section that acknowledges the limitations of their things, which aren't really covered in the article. Cool. So methodology wise, um, although. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 doesn't really mutate a lot. There are some tiny differences that you can see between them. It essentially lets us create a family tree where you can look at commonalities. So if, say, the virus coming from one person was just throwing out like a random series of letters, which aren't even nucleotides, like ABC, 
then if another person has a virus that, that has that, you know, sequence ABC, uh, maybe it changes in them, goes to someone else, and then it's ABB, you can kind of link them as something similar. And of course, in genetics, it's more complicated. You're dealing with, you know, more bases. But you can kind of assemble a sort of like linear family tree by, you know, how it's changing, uh, how it maybe went somewhere else. And then you see a branch that's specific to say one certain area. And that's kind of how they assembled this, you know, air quotes, paternity test of the virus. Right. So getting, getting even more basic. Uh, mm-hmm. where, um, is, would this have been done in, in a lab like you work in? Uh, so this is a little bit of a, like a, a bioinformatics thing. So potentially, mm. um, but it's not... And I guess what would I... I guess the question, what would I see if I saw the people doing this work? You're going to uh, see a lot of dudes on computers. So this ah, work interesting. Okay. was done... This is more like bioinformatics stuff. So they were using sequence data that's stored. We essentially, as scientists, have vast like online repositories of data. And from tests that people were taking, there are sequences of their, their viruses. So we can kind of keep track of what's out there. And scientists, scientists can run a lot of analysis on that. And so essentially what they did was they took sequences that already exist, downloaded them, mapped so this them is to D- each other. DNA? inside the virus or RNA? The virus is RNA, but we right. translate it to DNA to make it easier to read, basically. Interesting. Um, but okay. it doesn't make a functional difference in what we're looking at, really, as far as, like, sequences. So inside uh, the virus, inside each virion, I think was the yep. word, right? A, mm-hmm. in, which is the, an individual particle, cell, yep. particle, individual virus particle. Inside that, there is some sort of... Uh, protein or some material, which is the genetic code of that. Yeah, the RNA genetic code of it. But RNA and DNA through assorted enzymes, we can basically interconvert. And Uh DNA is a little bit more stable. So when we sequence them, we convert it to RNA. We convert the RNA to DNA. Right. And then use our assorted sequencing methods to develop basically a read of what it is. We get that read as like a, a file. And then can upload that file to a database. And what they did was they took that file and what, 20,000 of them, I think they said? Yeah. uh, And downloaded them and mapped them to each other, essentially comparing what they said. Um, It's a little bit like if you tried to copy a couple of sentences and then matched your piece of paper where you copied it up against, you know, the original book that you copied it from. And then you realize, oh, maybe you misspelled something. And that's sort of how they're trying to look at it. How long do we know how how many letters are we talking about in an individual virus particles DNA or RNA or as after it's converted to DNA? Uh, uh let me solve with a quick Google. I want to say it's like it's high. Uh, thirty one point. No, that's the largest one. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out exactly how many KB it is. I want to say I know it is big. I just don't remember exactly how many kilobase pairs. Uh, coronaviruses, approximately 30 kilobase pairs. So that's like 30,000. Whoa. So yeah, each so this is a lot tiny, of letters. Each of those little globes that we see, the little spheres with the spikes on them, is mm-hmm. one coronavirus particle, one yep. COVID-19 particle. And inside there, there is a string of uh, RNA, and you can put that through a chemical reaction or something, and you can get some converted to DNA so you can read it. 
and you get 30,000 pairs um, for each one. And so the computers are comparing words, basically, that are 30,000 letters long. It's like even worse than German <laughs> in terms of words yeah. that are so huge, right? And it's just, so it does all this sort of sorting, and they realize, oh, we have 1,356 variations within these 20,000 times 30,000 letters or whatever. Yeah, so they, they can essentially try to figure out that those, however many sequences, yeah, it probably does boil down to however many different types. I don't quite know exactly how they got that number because they did match it up against travel estimates. So I think they yeah. tried to sort of forecast backwards in time, right? which I definitely know affected their but overall calculation. Of basically, what it comes down to is they, they looked at um, the genetic code of the virus that was inside, I guess they get it through the blood. Did, was it that 20,000 people gave a blood test? No, no, no. This, so this would oh. have been the nasal swab. Oh, okay. The, um, the, the, right, the okay. standard normal run-of-the-mill coronavirus got test. It. So 20,000 people had swabs stuck up their nose. Real far. Then we, Real far. And then we had, there's a room somewhere, or several rooms, in the United Kingdom that are full of 20,000 snotty swabs. And the brave scientists did whatever they had to do. What do they do with that swab? They stick it in a, dip it in so something? You have to kind of process it first, basically. So you right. want to do what's considered an RNA extraction. You want to get the RNA out of that, you know, swab of, it probably has like some virus, some maybe cell bits, a lot of gunk. Uh, <laughs> so it's a process of, you know, you want to clean it up a little bit. You want to make sure it's not going to Maybe a little cocaine. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, someone really, really had a, a big blowout party before they decided <laughs> to go and uh Yeah, so you you want to make sure you know you don't have any cocaine in your sequences. Uh right. so you really want to they clean it up, they isolate the RNA, and then you know, most of the diagnostic tests are a little bit more binary, like yes, no. Uh, but I do believe a small fraction of them are, are actually sequenced. I don't think everyone's uh coronavirus tests are sequenced. I don't actually uh -huh. know uh -huh. how they choose what ones they're gonna sequence. I'm assuming it's a random percentage of the tests that they sequence. Right. Um, and then, yeah, through that process, they either get back to you eventually with a, hey, yes or no, uh, and then also get back to scientists with another sequence for our massive growing library of coronavirus sequences. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So it boils down to they, they were using this process. They were able to figure out that uh, by the time the virus came into... Or, so there, there must have, let's say there was a patient zero or a patient one who came from, maybe it sounds like Italy was the first, they believe, to bring it. Mm -hmm. Someone from Italy brought it to the United Kingdom. And so uh, they flew into Heathrow, they walked in, and hello, you're the first person to bring coronavirus into the United Kingdom. All right. But within a short period of time, well, actually, they went over, oh, these three months, so some people were coming in from Italy, and there were people coming who, like, maybe the first people came, and they all had the same thing. And then someone else came with a slightly different variation, and then a little bit later, someone else came in with a different variation, to the point yeah. where 1,356 different versions 
arrived in the UK. And I guess that's how many are floating around now. Yeah, exactly. And so in the sort of traditional patient zero model, what you would think is one person came in at, say, you know, the southernmost point of the UK, Mm -hmm. and then through transmission of only from only that one person's original strain, it bopped all the way across the country. But in this sort of way of considering it, even just with two people, you consider it, well, someone was at the very bottom of the UK, someone arrived at the very top, and the strains that are happening there and even converging towards the middle and spreading are, you know, separate. They're different. Um, so it's sort of managing multiple different points of infection where it's, it's cropping up, not just, you know, one single sort of radiant mass of virus spreading out across the country. It's multiple different pinpricks of uh, yeah. respective patient zeros. Yeah, which is amazing. And if it weren't for these variations, we probably wouldn't be able to understand that. Yeah, if it was perfectly identical to all other, like if, if say, the moment in China the patient, the actual patient zero got infected, it never changed ever again. There right. was no even minor, non-consequential, we, we call them SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, just little tiny changes. Mm. We would not be able to tell necessarily who got what from where. We wouldn't be able to develop this family tree of the coronavirus. So it's actually kind of helpful that there's these tiny little changes that we can track. It is amazing. It's a little bit like, I guess, fingerprints, uh, like yeah, you always exactly. say DNA. And so uh, if there was only one version, if it never mutated, you would just find the same fingerprints everywhere. Uh, yeah, and like it'd be a real serial confusing. Killer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, there are 13, more than 1,300 serial killers running around the country. Great. Um, <laughs> so look, lastly, just when I look at those spheres, the, the COVID-19 spheres with the spikes, uh, does this mean I could see more than 1,300 different, like, does it, what are these differences that we're talking about? Does it mean the thing looks different or? No, they're know. pretty like non-consequential. So for example, like mm, even mm. in humans, fi- like fingerprint regions, they're not really transcribed. They're not turned into a protein or an effect. They're just sort of around, which is why. So the fact that they don't code for anything, that's, that's sort of genetic speak for do they produce a protein. The fact that they don't code for anything means that they're allowed to sort of drift genetically a lot more, which enables us to get this. There's, there's not a selective pressure to be like, hey, make sure this is exactly the same in every single person. Yeah. Um, so you probably wouldn't, you wouldn't really notice anything different about the virion uh, itself if you know you were looking at these bits. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think there's any sort of air quotes junk regions in a coronavirus. It's a virus, so it's pretty pared down. Um, but either way, yeah, it's, it's not anything that's significantly affecting the makeup of the virus. Elsewise, we would be talking about 1,300 different, like, completely different strains. Right, right. Which is amazing. It means that, and I guess then human DNA is the same thing, that there's, uh, well, like you mentioned junk, but without getting too far into junk DNA idea, um, well, just looking at those 30,000 letters, it sounds like it's actually very inefficient in a way, or that that there's all these things that can change in this genetic code, but don't really have any effect? Or is it they have some effect, but we just don't know what it is? So it's sort of actually, in a weird way, the opposite with this. Um, mm-hmm. So in our DNA, there's a lot of things that could change that have no effect because we have a lot of regions that don't do anything, really, just sort of uh. by the fact that we're old, we're big, we're not under a lot of selective pressure to get rid of them, i.e. Uh-huh. nature and existence aren't punishing you if you have a longer sequence somewhere than someone else, if it's 
not resulting in a protein. But a virus sort of has a selective pressure to be kind of pared down. That carrying extra junk with it might slow down its replication if it has to create more RNA per virus particle when it's not giving it any sort of advantage. Um, The parts that are changing are likely parts that are not really involved. Like they're, they're not as critical. I actually don't know where the SNP regions that they're checking are. Mm. I feel like I got to find a, a paper on that and just read yeah. up. I but, think it's, it's not so much any concentrated region as just like tiny things that aren't affecting the overall protein yeah. that, it, that it's creating. So it could potentially affect it, but more so you would just see like selection against ones that uh, if it is a problem that it changed, it would just die out. Right. So like the hu- human DNA is kind of like the Windows operating system or something. It has evolved over oh, an yeah. enormous amount of time to um, be used in zillions of different ways. And any individual person is only using it, you know, in some particular way. Or at Oh, yeah. And then you'll get, you'll get weird artifacts like, why do I still have Edge from Internet Explorer? Like that's right. that's kind of like a weird artifact. <laughs> exactly. Whereas the the virus uh, genetic code is more like an app. It's like very small. Yeah, um, it's very compact. Not a great app, but it's a it's enough of an app to cause you great harm potentially. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, wow. Yeah, this is all so interesting. There's just so many questions. I and I hope those of you who are listening found this this fascinating. Do you mind if I? Too. Go ahead. Point out one yeah. thing. Yeah, so I wanted yes. to point out one thing about sort of the difference between the academic paper itself and the article. Yeah. Um, because so one, this is a, a preprint paper, the study that they're talking about, which means that it hasn't gone through peer review yet. And peer review is essentially the process where we call in other scientists to look at a scientist's work and just sort of sign off on it and be like, right. this is legit, this is sound. Because right. for me, even though I'm a virologist, um, I'm not a bioinformatician. I, so the, a lot of the statistical analyses that they're running, I'm not necessarily qualified to be like, yeah, that's exactly what I would do. I, I don't work with data this big, or at least I haven't yet. Uh, so they call in people who have that skill set in order to sort of just give it the approval, the methods look right. Um, their conclusions are correct given the methods that they did. Um, and they also, you know, fortunately the authors really do a good job of talking about where they might fall short. So there's an entire section in the paper which talks about its limitations. So they're saying that we can't, you know, account for all of the sources of uncertainty because not only are they mapping all of these different genetic reads, but they're trying to map it essentially in relation to travel schedules, incoming planes, incoming trains, incoming boats, which is a huge, like, additional amount of data that, you know, beyond just the virology aspect of this. So they're still, according to them, trying to figure out how sensitive their results are and really like try to eliminate some of the uncertainty in some of their sources of data. Um, Cause you know, it, it's hard to estimate how is this traveling even around a country? Um, if you're trying to get travel data for just about every country on earth, that's potentially going to the UK. Um, so it's a huge undertaking and they do acknowledge fortunately that, you know, we can't really figure out all of the sources of uncertainty. So by their estimate, sure it's, 1,356 potential new sources, but maybe that does, that will be changed uh, when they are able to get a better handle on all of the different transportation methods and incoming amounts of people. Right. 
So it sounds like more likely then to go up than down. But even if it went down, it's not going to go back. It's not going to be the idea that there was one person. Oh, yeah. Either way, it is a right. lot of people. Like they, they, a lot of independent points. That's pretty concrete that they've nailed down. It's just maybe more in the specifics of the number. Like maybe I'll check in on this paper again two weeks from now and it's 1,357 people. Yeah, you know, that's just, right. just stuff like that. We found you. Yeah. <laughs> one more. You thought you could get yeah, away. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, this is amazing. And, and this is just the UK, which is a relatively small country compared oh, to... Oh, in the US, it's probably a ridiculous number of individual cases. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you figure, I mean, how many international airports does the UK have? I, you know, if it has three or four major ones, I'd be amazed. Um, beyond, let's say, London, uh, whereas the US has, yeah, untold numbers of inputs and inputs and outputs. Um, yeah, fascinating, fascinating. And and I now have an image of what happens to your swab after it comes out of your nose. So that was <laughs> interesting too. Thank you so much. Thank you. As always, this is really helpful. Um, and uh, let's give a shout out to Rockefeller and Rockefeller EDU. Where, where can uh, people go to learn more about the kind yeah. of stuff you work on and, and at that campus? So one of the great resources at Rockefeller is Rock EDU, which is our science outreach program. Uh, and they have a whole host of things about um, the coronavirus and sort of like g general information on it uh, for all age groups, which I think is really fantastic. So it's, you don't have to have sort of a barrier of, well, you could say, oh, I don't know anything about viruses. And they have all of the resources you need to know, you know, to, to start yourself up from scratch. That's fantastic. Again, we'll put the link uh, on our website, which is what, what the if dot com. And there you can hear all of um, the incredible uh, news, behind the news, uh, behind the headlines stories that uh, Gabby has been doing for us each week, um, as well as a bunch of longer episodes we did with Gabby prior to that, really getting deep into um, the coronavirus science. And also all our other fun and fanciful stuff. We do lots of physics, astronomy, and um, psychology. We have an episode uh, coming up on imagination. What if there was no imagination? Oof, that'd be rough. For science, at the very least. For exactly. a lot of things. Right. And yet, it'd be easier because you wouldn't have to imagine what's coming up next week. But I encourage you to subscribe if you haven't already. Um, you can do that on our website as well, whattheif.com. Go right to the page there, and uh, right on the right side there, you'll see a place to subscribe to your favorite podcast app. And uh, you can also contact us there, right there on the on the homepage. Give us, send us some notes, send us your questions. Um, we'd love to address them, and also any ideas, any ideas for future shows, whether it's on the virus or not. Um, uh, take a look. So, uh, and give a shout out to uh, my colleague, Professor Matthew Stanley from NYU, who will be back with us for the uh, for our feature presentation this week. And uh, Gabby, thank you. Uh, you are back to work. Yep, in the lab. I've been in the lab. Yep. Where you mentioned you've been listening to What the If. I so have. This is like a crazy feedback loop of infotainment. <laughs> I'm glad. And, and um, uh, if you're in a lab and listening to What the If, too, let us know. We, we do have quite a few scientists of, of different flavors all around the world. So. It's fun listening to thought experiments while I do biology experiments. Yeah, that is a, see, that's a, brilliant, that's a brilliant brain that can do that. That's amazing. Um, next week, who knows? 
whatever the headlines bring, we will address. I hope everyone uh, there is doing well. It seems like most of the world is kind of trying to get back to normal or at least go out and get, and I hope things are going all right for you here in New York. We're moving along slowly. So um, no haircuts yet. Nope. So this is why this show is not in video um, to spare you my particular horror. Thank you, Gabby. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening. We will see you next time.